Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Adoptees podcast. So I was just saying to our guest today, Ron, Ron Levi, that we've had too many women on the show. So it's good to, good to have a bloke. I'm good to have a bloke on, on, on the show after a while. So welcome to the show, Ron. Looking forward to our chat today. Thank you. Uh, thank you for asking or for inviting me. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about something that's important to both of us and obviously many others. Yeah. So, uh, Ron's uh, just just in case, like you haven't noticed, listeners, I'm pretty much all the episodes now are are fellow adoptees. Um, I've done a lot in the past that had a lot of adopted parents on. Just decided to to focus in narrow the focus to um, uh, to adoptees. So, Ron's a fellow adoptee. Um, he's an author as as well, um, and and uh, something that I when I reread his. Uh, the the blurb for his book uh, this morning I thought would be a great great way to kick off the conversation because it's uh, it's so eloquently put and uh, such uh, some big themes so I'm just going to read you the last sentence uh, and then we'll we'll dive into the conversation so uh, so Ron's book uh, he, yeah he goes as Ronald G Levi Jr on um, uh, on his Amazon profile so links as always in the show notes. Uh, so the book's called Spitting Image, um, and uh, Spitting Image here in the UK is a is a is a is a show, uh, a satirical news show. But Spitting Image is also the title of Ron's um, book, and it's a sweeping adventure of American coverage, sorry, courage, perseverance, and faith, culminating in acceptance, gratitude, and personal transformation. So some big themes there. Ron and the and, and the one that particularly intrigues me um, uh, to to dive into is the personal transformation piece because thriving adoptees is all about um, learning. So um, you said before that uh, before we started recording that the personal transformation uh, is still uh, your personal transformation is still ongoing and and I guess uh, what do people say change is the only constant so um so yeah what, what why did why, why did you pick that that word personal transformation well I really feel that I became a different person in my attitudes about myself about race about society and culture um, were heavily affected and changed as a result of the discoveries of my research and of writing this book, right? Um, so in addition to doing the research and finding out the facts of my genetic identity, I also came to terms or face-to-face -face with a lot of preconceptions and misconceptions I may have had about American history, about race, about myself. Um, and, and I continue to, to evolve in that way, uh, but I, it definitely, changed my mind about some of the things that I thought previously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you give us a, 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 a snapshot or a, um, a, an example of, of something uh, in, in, in to, to, to bring that big picture into focus with that, a little example? Sure. sure. Well, you know, I, I, was, um, I was born in 1964. So this is the civil rights era in the United States um, on the tail end of Jim Crow when Many African Americans were leaving the South in, ag in agrarian, you know, uh, systems, um, low-paying subsistence farming or sharecropping, moving to the North for industrial, much better-paying jobs. Right, 
And my mother and her father, my grandfather, were two of those who came from Mississippi to Detroit uh, to, to have a better life. Right? And so my youth in Detroit, although I was born and raised in Detroit, was heavily influenced by their experiences in the South as well, their biases, their opinions. Right? Um, and so the way that we were treated and the way that we saw the world was probably, I would say, somewhat suspicious, right? Um, through redlining, and rightly so. I mean, because African Americans in, in the North um, brought with them all these experiences of discrimination, hatred, violence from the South. And so they were rightly suspicious to be uh, just as a matter of self-preservation, right? Um, and so when, you, when you're raised in that environment, or at least I'll speak for myself, growing up in that environment, um, I can say that I, I always thought of myself purely as an African-American male, inside and out, 100%. Although in the mirror, I could see the lightness of my skin, that I wasn't purely African, obviously, as really no African-American is, that we all have, you know, have some genetic inheritance from European uh, or other uh, nationalities. Um, but I, I, I identified as Black or African-American, you know, and felt that way throughout my entire youth. Uh, so then, although I knew it, it, I didn't really come to terms with it until I discovered the actual ethnic mix of my heritage through DNA and genetic testing. And I discovered that I wasn't half. Now, you know, I always assumed my, my mother was white, and my father was black. And, you know, so one would, you know, say that's 50-50, right? It didn't occur to me that my father was also biracial or may have been biracial making my ethnic mix only 28% black and 72% white, right? And, you know, and so when you grow up as a, as a black child in Detroit who's light-skinned, you kind of catch it from both ends, right? The, the black kids say, they call you, you know, yeah. you know, yellow kid or white kid. And the white kids, you know, call you black or other, or worse, you know, worse names, of course. Yeah. Um, and so you kind of catch it from both sides. But I always identified as black. Well, now... After discovering, you know, I got a, you know, a speeding ticket in my early days of driving, and on the speeding ticket, the officer, when they, they identify you, wrote white, right? And I was indignant, you know, as a young black man. I said, I could, I, you know, his, his powers of observation are obviously in question if he can't tell that I'm clearly a black man, right? right? <laughs> but now, you know, 20 years after that, seeing the genetic mix, you know, he probably had better powers of observation than I did of myself. Because in fact, you know, genetically, I'm 72% uh, European, uh, in fact, Slovakian and, and German. So, uh, so that was all part of that transformation. And then coming to grips with how people see us and how we interpret that and reconciling it with how we see ourselves as a part of this transformation, right? We assume sometimes if, if we don't get an opportunity or if we are denied service or um, feel that we are unfairly treated. As African-Americans, it's natural to question, is, is the reason for that because of the color of our skin, given the history of the United States and given what we've been through, right? It's, it's, the, it's one of the first things you think of, but it's never the only thing, it's never the only reason. Sometimes it's because of our own behavior that we're treated in certain ways, no matter what the color of our skin is, whether we're white, black, Asian, or anything else, right? Um, but really until I went through this this experience, I never gave it that much thought, right? So part of this transformation is really understanding um, how much of what we do we bring upon ourselves and how much of what we do 
is because of others' biases and how much of it is because of our own biases. And it's all just a big mixture of all those things, right? So it comes with a measure of being forgiving of oneself as well as being forgiving of others in order for us to move through life, I think, more with more grace, more effectively, at, at more at greater peace. Yeah. Peace, yeah. We're all looking for that. We're all looking that for that, my friend. Um, so as I was saying before we came on the start recording, I um, I've just come back from um, the the Caribbean, the Caribbean, um, and as I left the airport, there's a, a sign there that I've, I've we've been a, we've been a few times, and I'm sure this poster has been there all the time when they were seen, um, and it, it it showed a, a what what is called in, in Barbados a, a, a chattel house. So it's it's a house that the, um, it's a, it, it, it's a, a house kit from the, you know, the 19th century apparently. And uh, the emancipated slaves um, uh, built these houses and they could, they could move them, you know? So it's like a, like a, a wooden, yeah, a, a, a wooden, a wooden structure. Um, and it, it said that uh, that uh, the 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 um, the slaves in uh, in Barbados were emancipated in 1834, um, and I was thinking that that seems a long time. That seems a very long time ago. What I mean, can you give us some background in terms of what laws in the in the US when 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 did well, if I can recall, I believe Great Britain outlawed, outlawed slavery in about that time, about 1834, which is why they probably said Barbados as an English colony yeah. you know, was, was emancipated at that time. Um, but the concept of emancipation, emancipation, I think, is very different from the, the reality of it. Right? People may be said to be free, but they're, they're not, they weren't really free to do as they pleased. They didn't have the wherewithal, the resources. Um, natural or otherwise, to be completely free. Um, in the United States, of course, um, I think the importation of slaves, the slave trade, that is the bringing in of slaves from outside the US, I believe was outlawed around that time. I don't remember the exact date. Um, but of course, the slave trade within the United States continued until the Civil War ended it in 1864. Right. Okay. And then after 1864, although the concept the concept of emancipation and the, the amendments to the Constitution made um, freedom a word that we should all rely on, um, there was Jim Crow, right? And there were those in the United States who weren't ready to cede power of any kind or really provide equality of any kind. And we entered this era of reconstruction in which essentially... African-Americans were still in a system of slavery well into the 1880s and into the 1990s. Wow. Wow. And I, I guess this, for me, this, you know, people might be wondering why I'm asking all this. It's, I, I think for me, it's because of the, some, some, a lot of stuff that I've read about, uh, I think it's called intergenerational trauma. So, the, the 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 trauma is is passed on our um, and the 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 guy that I was listening to was talking about it from um 
the from the from a, a Jewish perspective, right? Um, but it it must be it must be the same um, uh, for for uh, any group such as uh, you know slaves and uh, African Americans or here in the UK pe- people that have come uh, you know perhaps they the they came over with the what's called the Windrush generation so when um, Britain started uh, bringing uh, encouraging people that had the, the offspring of and and the the uh, what do we call it? the descendants of people that of slaves that went west to bring them back east to work in 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 um, our equivalent of of Detroit, which is uh, which is Birmingham, where a lot of the car uh, the a lot of the, the car manufacturing was built. Like obviously in um, Detroit is Motown, Motown. Um, so this. This generational, intergenerational trauma that's passed on um, sits on top of a. Uh, I was talking, did a podcast this morning with um, a, a, a Russian uh, adoptee. So we talked about the different layers of trauma, and she came up with this metaphor of a, of a sandwich. So you've got the you've got the primal wound. We've got um, uh, you know a, a abuse and neglect that may happen uh, within the biological family. Um, before adoption, the same thing that any neglect that goes on in in the adoptive family. We've got the uh, the transracial piece. We've got the transcultural piece, and then we could add on top of that the kind of generational trauma. And all this stuff is building up and 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 adding to the I don't know what you would call it the the emotional backpack that. We the trauma the backpack of trauma that that um, different groups of people are are traveling around traveling around with, and as a white guy adopted by white parents, um, uh, you know I don't have any of that, so I I don't I don't understand. I don't have no lived experience of that. So that that's why I think it's important to understand all all, all this as. Factors in the mix of, of the of, of the of the trauma piece, right? Well, I, I I really like the phrase you turned there, the backpack of trauma. I, I think we all probably do have our own backpack of trauma, whether we're white or black, um, and maybe you know our, our backpacks contain different traumas, but they're trauma for us nonetheless. I mean, just the fact of being adopted. You know, one wonders, you know, about one's origins. Why was one adopted? What were the reasons and circumstances? Wasn't I good enough? What was it about me that caused my mother to give me away? Right? Was it was it my fault? Was I not lovable enough? Um, and that's universal, regardless of race and color, right? And I think some people get over that very quickly, and, and you know, some attribute um, their ability to rise above that. Um, to the love they received from their adopted family, right? And I was raised in a warm, loving family. I knew that I was adopted, but I never really felt the, the need or desire we hear sometimes to go find out about my, my, my genetic family because I was very comfortable and loved in my own adopted family. But that doesn't mean the trauma doesn't exist. And that doesn't mean they don't have a backpack, right? They, they've still got a little backpack and it may just not, it may not weigh them down always, but sometimes at night when they're asleep, or when they look at their kids, they might wonder, 
there's something about my kids I just don't know because I don't know my own genetic identity. That was the case for me, right? So even though my mom loved me very much and I came from a family that took great care of me and loved me and provided everything I needed, once I was married and had children, I couldn't help but wonder, that, you know, um, when we go to the doctor, for instance, when we adoptees go to the doctor and the doctor asks about medical history, we're limited. We only know what we know about ourselves. We can't say if there's a history of some, you know, disease or something in our families, right? And that's okay. I can deal with that as long as it was me. But now when it came time for my children to not have that answer, I wasn't okay with that, right? And I wanted to be able to find out about my genetic history, my, my uh, biological mother and father's medical history so that I could at least give that to my own children so they would grow up knowing. Um, so little things like that. So that's all part of the trauma. That's all. So it's not about anger and resentment all the times. Sometimes it's just about not knowing the things that so many of us take for granted. If you're born with it and you know it, it's not traumatic. But I think there are probably also things that cause us each a little bit of trauma, especially for adoptees. And at the very least, it's closure. You know, at the very least, if you had a fantastic experience, you know, God bless the child that has his own. But if you've had a fantastic experience, you don't have any interest in finding other family, sometimes you still just would like to know that closure. And it may not be top of mind. It may not be the most important thing in the world, but you kind of still want a little bit of closure. At least it would be nice to know, you know, bare minimum. Yeah. So um, another thing that you said when we spoke last time is, uh, is this, and I loved it, the fact that love is the way. Um, so can you give us a bit of context to, to, to around that because I feel I just I feel like I, I just threw it in <laughs> um so what does what's the context of that and what does it, it mean to you Rob? well when I look back at the experiences um and the you know we, we we trudge uphill sometimes sometimes we get to coast downhill a little bit and it was always at the top of that hill coasting down where I I, I had overcome something and it was a result of love that allowed me to overcome that something. Okay. For me, I feel that I felt that love from my mother, from my grandfather, who was a Baptist minister, and from my own personal faith in relationship with God. I felt loved and protected, even though sometimes I couldn't explain it or where it was coming from. You know, I always felt someone was on my side. Someone was looking over my shoulder. Uh, it doesn't mean that I never experienced difficulties. I did. Right? But love was always the way for me. And even in finding out, you know, some of the uncomfortable truths, you know, like learning that my second great grandfather owned my second great grandmother right? and that I was the second great grandchild of a Confederate sympathizer, you know, um, that was hard to accept at first. And when I went to the door of the home that still stands in Dublin, Georgia, and the, the you know the the Greek Revival columns were there on the front porch and the white balcony. I mean, something out of a movie, right? I I noticed physiological changes. I mean, I was sweating, I was perspiring, my heart rate was up. I was worried. I didn't know these people. I didn't call ahead and tell them I was coming. Here I am coming up the driveway of a place in my mother's experience where people could be shot. But now this is 2015, so my head was telling me. They're not going to shoot you. But my experience was telling me, you have no business here. You know, you don't know these people. You're not welcome. Right. Yeah. But again, love. Right. 
and expecting to be loved, expecting that love was a way, I was able to move through that. And I was able to say, you know, this family who experienced so much trauma, my grandmother, the child of that second great grandfather and second great grandmother, she, although born into slavery, named her first son after her half white brother who also owned her essentially, right? So this, this, this issue that we always think of, I'm not saying in any way that slavery was good or that there are good things to be found in slavery. What I'm saying is it's very complicated and that love is persistent and that love takes on many forms and love is our salvation in every instance. That's what I'm saying, okay, right? So somehow she got through that. Somehow she loved her mother, her mother loved her, she loved her children. Somehow these relationships were more complicated than we can even imagine. And we can only reconcile, we can only get through them through forgiveness. And you can't forgive if you can't love. In my opinion is the only way to forgive is to love yourself because sometimes we don't realize it, but we hold on to these things which are very powerful. This baggage that we talked about, this trauma in the backpack, it, it, it weighs us down. And the only way to open up that backpack and unload that weight, unload that trauma is to forgive. If we don't love ourselves enough to forgive, the trauma will continue to drag us down and slow us down. So sometimes we think, well, I can't forgive that person because what they did was so terrible, right? That's not the reason to forgive. The reason to forgive is because I love myself enough to move forward. I love myself enough and I am loved enough and I am worthy enough that I shouldn't be weighed down by those things. Yeah. So we have to unpack the trauma. The only way to unpack the trauma is to forgive. Even if the person we're forgiving never knows we forgave them. We know. Yeah. So it starts with love and love is the way. Yeah. Wow, there's a lot of power there. Um, I uh, I've talked I've talked about this a few times. Do you, um, on on the on the podcast, and I think it's, but I I think it's a, a great a great story. Do you ever remember a, an American guy called Wayne Dyer? Did you hear him? Yes, Doctor Wayne Dyer, but I can't remember the context. Yeah, next week. Wayne it was. Dyer. He was he was a, a I guess a, 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 a self development personal development kind of spiritual author guy one of the early people in this space in the sixties and the seventies uh, eighties uh, I think um, he he died a, I don't know maybe five six years ago now uh, but he he tells this story on a on a a, a PBS show I think it was of so he he was he, he was part of a big family and there out i think that his father was no, his father was an alcoholic or his, but his father left him and his siblings and his mum to fend for themselves uh, and um Wayne Dyer carried that trauma that backpack and resentment towards his father for decades, and by a strange series of events, he ended up at his father's grave side. And he went there 
and his he intended to actually pee on his father's grave right um he he ranted and raved at his at his father's grave for a couple of hours um and then he had a spontaneous forgive forgiveness and he says that you know using the language we've been talking you know that 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 took the the the, the backpack of trauma of resentment fell off his shoulders and he reckons that his uh, he him and his the work that he wanted to do in the word world soared after that moment and when i see uh when i see anybody holding a grudge especially adoptees um holding a, a grudge towards somebody you know so it could be that could be the birth parents it could be the adoptive parents i i think i always think of that story um and I, and and it, it really sums up for me what you just said in the you know we we can have a really good reason to hold a grudge <laughs> um but you know the um, I, I appreciate that story so much i'll tell you coincidentally I just uh, re recalled uh, where I know Wayne Dyer. Wayne Dyer is also from Detroit. Oh, wow. Of course, yeah. yeah. He was born and raised in Detroit. And he went to the same university I went to. I went to Wayne State University, and he went to Wayne State University. Um, but the, the story about um, him wanting to pee on his father's grave. Now, can you imagine me standing at the graves of my second great-grandfathers, who were slave owners, who impregnated my second great grandmothers in Dublin, Georgia, what I must have been thinking. I, it occurred to me, let's put it like that. I didn't do it, but, <laughs> but, but it definitely occurred to me. But, you know, but he's right though. You know, it really sets you free. You know, I don't, it's not the truth that sets you free. It's love and forgiveness, especially love of oneself. And it's, it's a, a tough thing to love oneself that much. Right. Especially when you've been given away. Right. Resenting. You know, I resented my mother once, my biological mother once. As I said, I had mostly a happy um, you know, youth and family in, uh, in Detroit, although we had some tough times with my with my adopted father. Right? My mother was just a saint and my father's family and parents and cousins were all fantastic, too. But we had some tough times and there were some really difficult times when I thought to myself, you know, if if my birth mother hadn't given me up, you know, would my life would have been so much better, you know. Um, but I, I discovered again through through the research, her life was no better roses. She had a really, really difficult time. And I really kind of believe now that if she hadn't given me up, she and I both might have been, you know, killed. You know, we might not have made it as far as we did. So... I, there really is a reason. So this goes back to where I said, you know, even when I even when I didn't know where it was coming from, I felt that someone was on my side, watching over me and taking care of me. And I'm sure that was the case. So, you know, when I realized that it was so much easier, I really didn't have to forgive her that much because, you know, those those feelings of resentment and wanting to know that, you know, why did she give me up? Those were episodic for me. 
I, I didn't carry those with me every day, you know, throughout my life. Only in a couple of bad times did I think those things, you know. Yeah. But yeah, it's important to be able to let them go. However, yeah. you do that. It's um very interesting for me the fact that I, I've never heard um anybody anybody's experience in that regard match my my own so clearly in, really? yeah my i think it sounds like your adopted dad gave you a, 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 a well, was a trickier character than mine for example but in terms of the in terms of the the feelings the feelings of you said that the uh, you on a couple of occasions when you're in a tough spot um you had some resentment towards your birth mother i, I would say i just I had it. I had once. I had some anger towards her, um, and then uh, and then another. And, and on a second occasion, I I I was terrified of her rejecting me again. But those two moments really stand out um, because we're talking about forty seconds. Two two twenty second bursts. Um, like I'm three years three years younger than you, so um, uh, over. I've now been on the planet. What is it? 50, 56, 56 years. And in that time, I've had forty seconds of anger or resentment towards my birth mother. Yeah. So forty seconds, but they really stand out. <laughs> uh, they, they really stand out. Uh, and I was just flicking through my my notes um, in terms of the the religious stuff and and, and the anger that because I was talking to to my mentor um, last uh, yesterday, and she she reminded me of two things um, that are pertinent to our conversation today. One thing apparently the the Buddha said that there's no justifiable anger. No justifiable anger. I thought that was really thank you. I think that was really cool. Um, and another thing she said was is a quote that she shared with me a, a, a lot of time, an Einstein quote, which goes something like the biggest question we can ever ask ourselves is is the world for me or against me? And you, you've talked a couple of times of uh, perhaps your, your your faith and other things in in, in, in your world. You you felt you have felt that the world has been on your side. That's that would be. So you said something guiding you something, but it's yeah, some kind of Yeah, I would say it differently. Let me clarify that yeah. the, the world has never been on my side, especially as a black male, born when I was born. The world has always been determined to kill me off oh. from the very first moment. It, it's God who has been on my side. Okay, sorry. Right? It is sorry, the creator God. of the universe. It is love personified. It is the embodiment of peace and love that has always been with me. Um, even before I knew what it was or who it was, it's always been there. Um, and, and it's been the thing that has done battle against the world on my behalf. Wow, that makes sense. Yeah, and I'm I'm feeling pretty stupid now. <laughs> Sorry. Oh no, I don't mean. 
uh, that's the last thing I want you to feel. Yeah, yeah, cool. But um, no, I mean, you know, from, from a faith perspective, often, a, I don't know if it's a Protestant thing or if it's a Catholic thing, but we often make a big distinction between being in the world and being of the world. Okay. okay. We, are, we are born into the world, but through faith, we separate from it. Right, from our in the way that we think and the way that we act and respond, we hope through the grace of God we can change the world right? because the world needs changing, the world is inhospitable to us, <laughs> right? So, we want to change it and impose love upon the world to make it better. Yeah, <laughs> so as you say this, I'm thinking that I, I remembered the uh, the quote, the Einstein quote, wrongly, or I've not, or, or I think he said the universe. So by the universe, he probably meant God mm. rather than the world as the physical world. I think, I think that's what he said. So um, universe is for him, maybe said. I should, yeah, may, maybe I should check my quotes before I. Um, toss them out there in a quite all right. Quite all right. I didn't really mean so much to correct you. I apologize, but I, I just wanted to be clear to those who know me and who listen to me what yeah. I mean. I think it's a great distinction. Yeah. I think it's a great distinction. So it, 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 we stumbled into it, but it's a great distinction. Mm -hmm. uh, though, uh, and um, the other thing, I guess, is that the, the change starts from starts from from within to talking you know for, from a personal transformation point of view so it, it's looking looking within rather than without first is that i think so sometimes there are triggers though of course right there are trigger events that you know may spark that change from within but i agree it does you know they say people only change when they want to change right yeah. And so it, it does sometimes require a spark or something, some event, some external event to wake us up and to realize, you know, that we want something different, that we want to change. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a whole that I could I could take us down that rabbit hole. Um I, but I wanna I wanna I wanna bring it um back to you and your 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 story. Um so could, could you give us some we, we started off with this this personal transformation uh, idea off the back of the blurb from your book um what would you say would the, be the most significant significant points in in that in that change um you you talked about facing those uh, Greek neo Greek stat, um, columns and stuff like that, and as you as you said that, I thought maybe that's the the generational trauma thing coming sur surfacing. You know, it, as as what's he said, the guy the guy Bessel van der Kolk says, you know, the body keeps the the body keeps the score. Yeah. Um, so was that a transformational moment for you? Did that when 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 you became aware of that? Um, that those sensations within your body? Um, it, it's hard to pin it down to one moment. I would certainly say that on that trip to Georgia, 
that the trip in itself was certainly that moment, right? No, the, yeah. Being on the steps wasn't so much the moment, but the next day or the day after, actually, um, the home was for sale at that time. And one of my cousins was a real estate agent who secured, you know, uh, a tour of the home for us. We were able to go in and being in the home where they walked and worked and being on those grounds, looking out the window through the glass that they might have looked out through or probably replacing it, but still um, almost being in their shoes, almost, you know, was definitely a transformative moment um, for me and how I viewed them all and how I appreciated how complex their lives were. They weren't the simple, you know, simple, uh, that's a terrible word, but they weren't the black and white stories that we see, you know, in the movies and on television so often. They were extremely complex people at very complex times um, dealing with the hands that they were each dealt. Um, another time I think that were, were transformative moments, not, just maybe they were just memorable more than they were transformative. But the first time I touched my, my cousin Francis's hand. So Francis is on my paternal side. And because of all of the research she did um, before, before I met her, we, we, we realized our DNA match and we were both interested in finding out why she's a great researcher. And because of the work she had done, I was able to sort of fast forward into my paternal family it, it would have taken me years otherwise, but because she had laid the trail already, it was really became more of a matter of connecting a few distant dots than starting from scratch, right? Yeah. But meeting her for the first time and holding her hand, that was the first time I had ever held the hand of a person to whom I was genetically related. And just touching her skin and seeing her hand and holding her hand was very impactful to me. Um, another time um, we met... Um, at the home of one of our cousins, they, there were probably 10 of us cousins who met there. And Francis brought the family Bible with her. That was my great grandmother's Bible. The one who was born in 1847 into slavery. Yeah. She had this Bible and they had handwritten the names of children and marriages and deaths. And, and opening those pages of a book that was, you know, that was used in the 1870s um, with my relatives' hands on them that had caressed the pages and turned the pages and written. That was a very impactful moment for me. And then the third was meeting my, my maternal sister for the first time, realizing that I had a sister was crazy to begin with, but um, and finding out that we were so different. She with blonde hair and blue eyes and, you know, and it was just, uh, it was surreal. If not, if, if not transformation, it was certainly surreal. <laughs> yeah. Um You've talked about loving um, loving yourself and loving ourselves. It's such a big theme. Uh, were there any uh, were there any tipping points on 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 that when that became clear to you, or is that just is is that just always been been with you? No, I I think it's always it's always a challenge. Um, you know, I could be hard on myself as probably many of us can, you know, you can, it's easy to doubt yourself and to think you're not good enough. And it's not necessarily because of adoption, you know, or anything like that. Sometimes, you know, as I said, the world just is an inhospitable place and we all have a, a road to hoe as it were, and we all have a, a mountain to climb. Um, and sometimes I, I wonder if I'm up to the task and, 
I just remind myself that I've been loved and I am loved and I can love and it's going to be okay. Right. So from a transformational standpoint, um, if anything, I would say it, it's more of a first, it's more of a go-to position, a first stop than it ever was before. You know, before I could struggle with something and then eventually come back to that place where I was reminded it's going to be okay and I'm loved. Yeah. Right. Whereas now it's the first place I go. Does your faith play a role in that? Absolutely. Absolutely plays a role in that. Um, uh, you know, I, I think my faith teaches me, has taught me and continues to teach me how to love and what love is. You know, the, the unselfishness of it, the role of forgiveness in love um, and the power of love, the selflessness of love, right? The altruism of it worrying about others and not worrying about so much about myself. These are all things, all tenets of my faith, Christianity. These are all tenets of my faith that are just part of who I am now. Um, that doesn't mean that I, you know, that I, I never forget any of them or I do them out of order. You know, these, it's, it's a, I'm a work in progress, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, but no, my point is, I don't think I would know how to love were it not for that. And I'm not, I'm not sure how to describe love in absence of my faith. I don't have a way to do that. Yeah. So, yeah. So love is, um, faith it plays such a big part in who I am and how I perceive those things. And, and I'm growing in that. And I have been, you know, since I was young, since I was a child, I've been growing in that faith and learning it. And it's been teaching me and molding me and, you know, and guiding me. Yeah. And sometimes I put it on the side though, you know, sometimes I, I put my faith down. I have, I try not to these days now that I'm a little bit older, but there are many times in my life when I'd set it down, you know, and kind of forget about it for a while. And then when things got really tough, I'd remember, Oh, let me go pick that back up again, and yeah. dust that off and see how it's supposed to work. You know, talk to somebody and see how it works for them. You know? um, but now it's more of a regular thing for me regular practice yeah and what what's the kind of the interplay between love faith and trauma how do those things do they fit do they fit together do they does, yeah, does, yeah. yeah how does that sound? so there we can be confused uh to think that you know, if we are loved and if we are protected, we will not experience trauma, right? If God loved me, I wouldn't experience trauma. If God loved me, I wouldn't have gone through that. If God loved me, I would have been spared, right? Um, that is the thinking of an immature me, okay? But my, experience now, my experiences now have taught me, I've gone through so many things where I fought, God did not, was not there in where I thought I was on my own, only to realize later that I could never have gotten through those things on my own, that I didn't get through them on my own, yet I got through them anyway. Right? And all of those pieces that had to be put into place in order for me to succeed or overcome were not in my control. Maybe one or two of them were, but so many others weren't. 
and I had no ability to influence those things, yet they all happened in concert for my good, for my benefit. Right? So those things continue, have continued to happen throughout my life. And I guess that you could say that they've been um, the things that have strengthened my faith because they've repeated and I've seen them happen again. So, or, you know, you could say I just attribute them to that. And for that reason, you know, I'm, I'm strong. But did I answer your question? Now you got me thinking. I, I, I don't think so. I, I think... It was a. It, it seemed it was a tricky question. I think really. Um, you, you, you answered it. Let me see if I can do better. You, you gave you, the, the fact that. Um, you, oh, oh! So trauma. So right. So how does how do trauma and love and forgiveness? Yeah. What's the interplay between those? Okay. Things? So I gave you the one example. We think that we're not going to go through these things, but faith has taught me through the examples that I, I tried to allude to there that it doesn't mean that we're not going to go through those things. It means that we're not going to go through them alone and that we will come out on the other side, right? Someone once said to me, uh, it was very true, God can deliver from, God can also deliver in and through, right? It doesn't mean that you won't go through something, but it means that you won't go through it alone and that you will come out on the other end okay, okay? So that's how faith and trauma work for me. It doesn't mean I won't go through trauma. It just means that when I'm in trauma, when I'm experiencing trauma, when trauma has me, has my backpack heavy, right? I'm not the only one carrying. Someone else is carrying that trauma with me and knows me and knows what the trauma is and will lighten that load. So we'll lighten that load through friendships. We'll lighten that load through loved ones. We'll lighten that load through laughter or music or diversions, right? There's always someone on my side, I believe, sent by God to help me through all of this. Not that he's going to take me around it, that I'll escape it all. So we've, we've got, uh, I, li I like this, it's a bit cheesy, but um, I'm, I've started so I'll finish. Um, we, we've all got the, uh, the trauma backpack, but God's got our back. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Do you remember, um, you know, how, I don't know if you've had this experience, but when we were kids, our backpacks were so heavy with books when we were going to school. And in the snow in Detroit, it would snow. And sometimes, you know, someone would, you know, push, you know, another kid down, right? And the kid would be on his back with his heavy backpack, unable to, to, to yeah. get up. Um, and it reminds me of how heavy our load can be sometimes. It makes it difficult to get up and move forward. Right? Yeah. And, one of us would help him up. Okay, we'd laugh. It'd be funny. We'd pick him up. You know, he'd stand back up with his backpack still on, and we just keep on heading to school. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Kind of like that. You know, there's, there's. I think um, God sends. It's not like you know an invisible hand reaches out of the clouds and plucks us up and sets us right. It's not like that. But the resources are brought to bear, right, to help us continue to move forward. Yeah, that's how I'd say it. that's the thing. Yeah. So, have you heard of a, a, a rig welter? Do you know what a rig welter is? A rig router. Rig rig welter. Welter. R I double G W E L T E R. No, I have not. I 
I didn't think you would have done. So, um, there's a there was a, a family there was a family brewery here in um, in, in the UK called um, Thixton, Thixton T R Thixton and Sons, and it grew into a big concern, and they uh, and, and they, they they then the family sold out to a, an even larger concern, you know, because there's lots of uh, what do they call it? Um, conglomeration. What do they call it? Uh, consolidation. Oh, okay. There's consolidation within the brewery industry, right? Mm -hmm. And so the the one of the sons of that of, of the current generation, so he'd be probably our age, yeah. Um, he didn't like it, and so he didn't like working for the. He didn't want to work for a, a big conglomerate brewer he set up on his own and he called and so he was the black sheep of the family okay mm -hmm. and he set up his own brewery and it's be called it's called black sheep named after the fact of the black sheep and their strongest beer is called rigwelter and, and so it's like six percent or five and a half percent you know for an ale that's quite strong and it's because a rigwelter is a sheep that once it's fallen on its back, can't get back up. I didn't know there was such a thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. So when when you were talking about the kid with the backpack that, that couldn't get up because of the weight of the weight of the books, I went to a, a beer story. So what that tells you. Love it. Right? Love it. <laughs> so uh, Rick Welters. Um so I'm conscious of time. Is there is there something um, obviously, uh, as always, listeners, there's links to Ron's book and his website and his socials in the in uh, in the uh, uh, yeah. Um, can can you hold it to the side? Oh, like over here. Somewhere. Just tell me. So he's holding up a. I'm 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 trying to do this. I, I'm trying. I'm trying to. Um. Oh, I am. So I'm I'm trying to do this. Apparently, it's good for social media. It's like po I saw somebody else doing it. Um, take a screenshot and uh, see if I can do this. Oh, I can't. I can't remember how to do a screenshot. Oh. Okay. Now I'm gonna do another one. Sorry, listen. Yeah, we got it. So it's called Spitting Image. Um, uh, the 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 book and there's links to it in the in the show notes. Is there something else that you'd like to anything else that you'd like to share on before we bring it to? No, I just like to encourage anyone who um, you know is, is interested in finding out more about their genetic identity. Uh, I'd like to encourage them not to be afraid of DNA testing. Um, I, I believe one of the more popular uh, sites that does a really good job with that in Europe is MyHeritage myheritage.com here in the u.s ancestry dna is by far and away you know one of the, the best ones that, that uh, i'm most familiar with and use a lot uh, but you know there can be a lot of fear and baggage that comes along with that when you don't know who those biological parents are you know part of that baggage that we talked about that trauma is will i be accepted should i do it should i not do it um, those are very personal questions um, i would say um, my recommendation would be if you're going to do it um, go in 
prepare for the worst, expect the best, prepare for the worst. It'll be somewhere in between, right? But, you know, um, usually parents, mothers don't give up children voluntarily for very good reasons. There's usually some sort of, um, some sort of trauma or some sort of challenge um, that requires that of her at the time the decision she has to make. So don't expect it to be all, all great, but I can tell you that I, I'm very happy that I did and that I don't regret it at all. I've made some great friends, uh, met some fantastic new cousins, and uh, we're family now for the rest of our lives. And it's just a blessing, and I'm glad that I did. And I hope that you all will have a lot of success with that too. And just remember, love is the way. And uh, thank you so much for the opportunity, Simon, to talk with you today and to share. Yeah. You're very welcome, Ron. I've uh, loved the conversation. I'm right now, I'm thinking what we're going to call the podcast episode. Are we going to call it personal transformation or love is the way? I've, you've just said love is the way. Mm, have we talked about? I don't know. I, have you got a preference on that? No, um, take a look though. I'm going to send you a link to a Mandalorian video. You've got to watch the video. It's just, it's amazing. But yeah, Love is the Way is a good one. Um, give give the listeners the context for the Mandalorian story. Uh, so the Mandalorian is a character in the original, uh, or actually Boba Fett. was He was known as Boba Fett in the first Star Wars. Right? He's a guy wearing this armor like a knight. Uh, you never see his face. And he was a bounty hunter in the original Star Wars. Right? Well, now they've got the spinoff, uh, and Star Wars spinoff is his own series called The Mandalorian. Right? And The Mandalorian is charged with returning a, a child to its family. Right? And so he's this intergalactic you know, guardian uh, bounty hunter who finds this child who is, in fact, everyone calls it Baby Yoda. If you know Yoda from the Star Wars series, this little one that he's found and been charged to protect looks like a, a Baby Yoda. It's not. Yoda, it's a different name, but of that species. So he's got to travel the universe, you know, getting away from all these people who want to do damage to this last Jedi, this little Yoda. And it's not his child, but he's charged with protecting and returning. And they call this child a foundling. So those of us who, some who are adopted are not foundlings, but those who were left, you know, at a, whether it's in a safe place or a dangerous place abandoned and then found are called foundlings. And that's why my book is called um, the Foundling's Memoir of Faith and Gratitude, because that was my situation. I was left in hospital uh, shortly after birth. And so this really resonates with me. But so that they, these, these um, uh, bounty hunters, um, the Mandalorians, live by a code that they call the way. And their phrase, whenever they get ready to take on a big mission or whenever they need encouragement, they say, this is the way. And they say it in unison, right? And uh, it, it almost tears me up. It's so silly. It's Star Wars. It's, you know, it's a fantasy thing. And I take it so seriously. You know? it's, it's like yeah. the best show. And I think season three is just starting. So if you get a chance, check that out. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Ron. Thank you, listeners. And uh, we'll speak to you very soon. Thank you. Thank you all. God bless.